0: You may be seated. Well, good morning, church. Good to see you here today, and those of you in town for vacation, God bless you for joining us for worship. I uh, will confess, I was driving home from work a couple of days ago, and I, it just occurred to me this was the Sunday after July the 4th. and I thought, Pastor gave me this because nobody's going to be there on Sunday. And I had ill thoughts of you in my heart, Pastor, and I'm sorry. I don't know what disturbed me most, that it took me that long to realize it or that you did it. But the Lord has paid you back amply. So thank you all for being here for more more than all the reasons that are immediately apparent. This summer... The pastoral staff and those that they graciously allow to supplement, like me, is covering the I am statements of Jesus Christ and some related uh, topics from Scripture. Who is Jesus Christ and what has he done? Which is really the most important questions we could ask and answer. And so, I have chosen the text of Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, if you want to join me there, first chapter of Hebrews, the first four verses. Who is Jesus Christ and what has he done? Jesus answers that in a number of his own words, and here the writer of Hebrews, though we're not sure who that is will give us his perspective on this in his introductory remarks and a summation of so much of what will be contained, no doubt, in those dear brother's sermons as they meditate on what Jesus said about himself. But if you've ever set out to study Hebrews, it's it's a challenge. It has, over the years, become one of my favorite books. But that was after so much effort to understand where it was going. And I think one of the reasons that Hebrews is a little difficult to understand on the outset is because of the location in history in which it occurs. In an analogous manner, I was reading a book called The Seasons of a Man's Life. It's not a new book. Uh, by a guy named Daniel Levinson. I forget the year that it was written. It's been around quite a while, though, but it was the first of its kind. It was, The Seasons of a Man's Life was a study done by various psychologists, psychiatrists, sociologists, in which, for the first time ever, they wanted to determine the common patterns that are part of just normative adult development, and then uniquely watch that play out in men's lives. And so they chose a, a great cross-section of the general populace and men of various ages and various, uh, from various backgrounds and in various stages of life, social settings and things like this, and they follow them around for a long, long time, uh, decades, and it you know, intermittent checkpoints, they would bring them in and interview them and ask them how things are going and what decisions have you made and what are your motivations, and they took that information and they they compiled it into what turned out to be a very insightful book. It's actually a little bit disturbing. I thought I was much more unique in, in my decision making processes, and I come to find out I'm sort of in the lower population of that study, actually. So anyway that's neither here nor there but it it's an amazingly insightful book because as it attempts to narrow down these developmental eras of a man's life there's debate when does one phase or era begin when does another end is it attached to a certain biological age is it linked to a critical event in most men's life, or does that appear completely random? And so just as an example, I'm not going to, you know, exegete that book to you today, but I want to make an important point here. Uh, They define early adult life beginning at around 17 to 22 and going to 40 to 45. That's early adult. Now, that's important because that places me firmly in early adult life. (laughs) Valuable study here. I've got another. I've got one more year in early adulthood. But what further complicates the study is not that they narrowed this down to four discernible periods of development, which they did. The debate always occurred as, when does it start and what triggers it? And so what they ended up doing that they did not anticipate doing was labeling also four transitional seasons where two eras overlap. Which is why the numbers I gave you for early adult, where adolescence is ending around 17 and The early adult transition by 22 has occurred, and it can be anywhere in that spectrum for a young man. Same with uh, early adult trans, that's the early adult transition, then there's a midlife transition between 40 and 45. And they note certain characteristics, not only of the definable errors, but of the transitional nature of one ending and another beginning. And let me just read you this little excerpt from the book because I think it's going to help you with Hebrews. He says that these transitional errors require a basic change in the fabric of one's life. And this takes more than a day or a month or even a year. The transition between errors consistently takes between four and five years, not less than three and rarely more than six. The transition is the work of a developmental period that links the eras that provide some continuity between them. A a developmental transition creates a boundary zone in which a man terminates the outgoing era and initiates the incoming one. For example, though the pre-adulthood ends roughly at 22 and early adulthood began several years earlier, usually at 17. The span from 17 to 22, and here's a key phrase that I think will help you, is what they called a zone of overlap. A zone of overlap where there's a period in which an old era is being completed and the new one is starting. This period in the early adult transition bridges the eras, but is part of both. So, While the four general developmental errors were generally agreed upon, it was the transitions that were complex and diverse and different amounts of time and seemed to be stimulated from different reasons in individuals' lives, yet with discernible patterns. So it's this zone of overlap that made the study For those who were doing it, a little difficult. Those of you that are going to study Hebrews, and you should, I believe that Hebrews is difficult for exactly the same reason, that it is written in a zone of overlap between the end of the old era, if I can take their terminology, or if I want to use the biblical terminology that the Apostle Paul will use more than once, the old aeon. And it is introducing us into the new aeon. Something is radically changing in history. And that is the genesis of this book. It is the beginning of it. It is the idea that makes it necessary. Because there are Christians who were firmly rooted in that old age, and it was a good age for Jewish believers. It was a good age for God-fearing Gentile believers who were brought into the worship of God and the Jewish heritage and made beneficiaries of the law and all the blessings that came with being the people of God. But that age is about to end. And yet... These Jewish Christians are being persecuted for being Christians while being Jewish. They are seen by their Jewish unconverted brethren as having abandoned the true faith. And they're very tempted to cling to those old ways that you would read about in the Old Testament. The temple is still around. The sacrifices are still being made. The high priest is there. But the writer of Hebrews, when you read it, in the light of this zone of overlap context, I believe makes a ton of sense. Because the writer of Hebrews is saying to these Christians that in some cases are being severely persecuted, having people come into their homes and plunder their stuff. Hebrews 10 addresses this. Some of them are being put in jail for no other reason than that they honor the name Jesus Christ. And they're wondering, is it worth it? Should, have I missed the road? Should I go back to the old way of worshiping God? The writer of Hebrews pens this book to say, dear brothers, Jesus Christ is the point of all the old ways that we worshiped God. They all pointed to Him. They were good, and they were right, and they were gifts of God's grace in their time. But that time is quickly coming to an end. Do not return to what very soon will not exist any longer. So, with that context in mind, as you read the book, it'll start coming together for you, I think. So, hear the introduction to this, because it sounds like he's beginning to tell a fairy tale. Because he says, long ago, and you expect him to say, in a land far, far away. But he doesn't. He says something close, though, and it's not a fairy tale. It's a rehearsal of God's goodness to Israel under the Old Aeon. He says, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, there's your context. That's what he's going to explain, and that's what he's going to warn them is passing away. When he says, in these last days. I do believe there are more than one way to understand that phrase. We are most certainly living in the last days and have been since the coming and the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. I would agree with that interpretation, but I think it means more than that. I think the writer sees something on the horizon whereby an abrupt end is going to come to the old way of worshiping God and that it's not even going to be available to them, and so to return to it would be very foolish. That also, for those of you that are students of the Word but struggle with difficult passages like Hebrews 6 and Hebrews 10 that appears to say that a Christian could lose their salvation, Put it, go back and read those passages, not right now while I'm preaching a different passage, but (laughs) at a more convenient and appropriate time. Go back and read those passages in light of what I've just said, and what comes out of the message, and see if maybe it doesn't flow a little easier for you. But nevertheless, in this zone of overlap, there are coming these last days, he says. Now, how is he going to convince them not to return to offering animal sacrifices, to worshiping at the temple, to observing the Old Covenant Feast and Festivals, he's going to say to them that all of those things pointed to Jesus Christ, but more than that, Jesus is superior to everything that you find in the Old Testament. And he's going to say, God planned it that way. It ought to be that way. That history is progressing and teaching and new Additions of the goodness of God are going to be poured out on His people. Don't go back to what seems to be comfortable and familiar only to miss the path. In these last days. So basically the outline is this. He explains to them the reason they should not return to the old covenant ways of worship by explaining who Jesus is and what He has done. He then explains to them the specific application of that cosmically in that it's created a new world and a new era in which they are being brought and they are to patiently trust God and persevere. And this is how he says it. Long ago at many times and in many ways God spoke to us by our fathers, by the prophets. But in these last days He has spoken to us by His Son who He appointed the heir of all things. And through whom he created the world. He, being Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Having become as much superior to angels as the name he inherited is more excellent than theirs. So the very first thing that he does is he says to them that Jesus is the Son of God. And that it is through his Son that he has fully and finally revealed himself. He contrasts that with the old covenant revelation of God. He says that it was both in the old aeon and the new that God speaks. He doesn't say it's a different speaker. It's God who has planned this and orchestrated. But he says under the old covenant God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But he did this not once or twice but many times and in many ways. If you were to start reading in Genesis you would see that initially God came into the garden and walked and talked with Adam As with a friend. Casual conversation. And then after the fall when spiritual death came into the world. God found other means of speaking to his people. The primary way in the old covenant that God spoke to his people. In fact, the primary way that God mediated his rule in the world following Adam's rebellion and submission to an angelic power, Satan? The primary way God dealt with the world was through angelic mediators. This theme, I think, is probably one of the least understood by good, solid Christian people, and thus, when we read the Bible, it doesn't always seem to make sense why Biblical writers address the issues which they address. For instance, if you do set out to study the book of Hebrews, you're going to get saturated in the first three chapters with this one statement Jesus is superior to angels. Jesus is superior to angels. Jesus is God's son. He's inherited that name, and no angel was ever called the son of God. He's going to go to the Old Testament. And eight different times just in the first chapter, he's going to directly quote or allude to Old Testament quotations supporting the concept that Jesus is the Son of God, that God has added to his eternally divine nature a human nature, and he's come into history. And Jesus speaks for God in a far superior way than any Old Testament means Our mediator could have done. But if you do not grasp the role that angels played in the Old Covenant as deliverers of God's law, as protectors of God's people, as those who would extend God's rule throughout the land, as those who would exact vengeance upon God's enemies and sometimes discipline upon his children, if you do not see the role that a Hebrew Christian in the first century would have understood an angel as holding... You'll wonder about mid-chapter 2, what's the big deal? I get it. I get it. But we really don't get it. Because we read the Bible with such familiar eyes at times, we see what we expect to see and what we don't expect to see, we just miss And one thing that is very easy to miss is the vital role these angelic mediators played in God's economy. And that was not necessarily a blessing to God's people. Because God meant both that age and this age, this new age, to be ruled by human beings. Under a federal headship, a representative government, and Adam was set up as that Government and he failed. So God, in judgment, handed creation over to these angelic mediators. He no longer dealt directly with men, but in many times and in many different ways, he chose to interact with us. Angels being a vital part of that. But if you grasp that concept, then it makes sense why Jesus Christ had to become a man. Some of you may have never thought about it. May honestly have never considered why he had to be a human being because God intended to save and rule the world through a man, a human. So Jesus Christ becomes, the author of Hebrews says, he becomes the means by which in these last days, in this new age that Christ inaugurated, that God has spoken to us. He says that Christ is more than that, though, that he is not only God's spokesman in history, but Christ is also the heir of history. Everything that God was doing in the old covenant, everything God was doing 2,000 years ago when this book was penned, everything that God's doing in the world today is leading up To every knee bowing and every tongue confessing that Jesus Christ is Lord over history. Everything. You say, well, there are some things that I see that don't seem to correspond to the lordship of Jesus Christ in history. And the writer of Hebrews is sympathetic to that. In chapter 2, he'll say you do not see with your physical eyes Jesus ruling over all things, but you do see him crucified, risen, and exalted. And so by faith, we accept the premise that he rules over every event of history. The writer in Hebrews says this because he says Christ is not only the heir of all things, And it's through him him that God created the world. But he's going to go on to say that Jesus Christ regulates the daily events of our lives. And not only ours, but by that, everyone who's ever lived. He says it like this. He says Christ created the world at the end of verse 2. And he's the radiance of God's glory, the exact imprint of his nature And it is he who upholds the universe by the word of his power. So the things that happen in this world happen in one sense because Jesus Christ has ordained that they happen. One of the great meditations to enter into as you study scripture is the thought that because God's greatest goal is his own glory to be known and spread and enjoyed by those who live within his creation sometimes he ordains events to come about which in the immediate do not please him when they come about But that he being sovereign over history, Lord of all, heir of all things, takes those sinful events done by the hands of sinful men and he turns them both for his own glory and for the good of his people. Is that not his promise to you? Whatever he ordains in its immediate context may be horribly sinful and painful. And though he himself is not guilty of the sin, he is the Lord of history. And he does ordain the course of history. And so by upholding the universe by his word, sometimes what his word ordains is that a sinful event that is painful and horrible in its immediate context is then by his own good and sovereign hand turned to be one of the most spectacularly glorious events of history. And necessary to accomplish his purposes. Now, can you as a Christian learn to think like that? If you can't, I think you're going to struggle at a very profoundly emotional level. Let me tell you what that thought, that meditation, that idea does for me is it it just puts solid ground under my feet when bad things happen. When really bad stuff happens or sort of minor bad stuff happens. And I would be tempted to question everything because the car overheated on the way to work. You ever been there? If I would be tempted to do that, I have to recognize that while God is known and desires to be made known, God is not a simple emotional being. You know, as as people, we, we want God to be simple and we believe we're complex. Sometimes I think we'd be tempted to tell somebody that he doesn't understand us, he doesn't know how I feel. Well, that's a whole nother sermon. But God is not simple. But he can be known. How? Through his son. And what can be known of him. Is that what he ordains. Will ultimately. Not on its own. Not from some evolutionary process. But because he is lord of the universe. And directs the course of history. And has a genuine Commitment and tie to humanity will work for the good of his people and the glory of his name. Now, if that is true of the most sinful event in history, which I would put into this category, God ordaining something that in its immediate context was sinful, caused him great pain for it when it came about, but he turned it to work for his glory and the good of his people, that being the death of his own son. If God can handle an event like that, do you not think he can handle the difficulty that you bring into this building this morning? Do you honestly not think that he's big enough, wise enough, complex enough, to enter into the marital struggle, the financial problems, the meaningless vocation, the difficulties that come with various midlife transitions. I don't know about those. I'm in young adulthood. Isn't it? So <laughs> and if he is big enough to handle that, wise enough to handle it, if he does uphold the universe by the word of his power, why haven't you taken these things to him? Why have we sought so much help from other folks that are just as confused as us? When God has said what he needs to say through his son, that I am not making light of seeking wise counsel. I am discouraging seeking wise counsel before you seek the Lord's counsel in your prayer closet. That's the aim of those statements. He has spoken to us in these last days by his son who he appointed the heir of all things. Through whom he created the world. Now it's starting to make a little more sense to me as the thought develops that if God created the world through his word being Jesus. That when it came time to recreate the world. To get rid of the old and usher in the new. He would do that through his word, Jesus. And Jesus is able to do this because he is the radiance of God's glory. In scripture, one of the most common images used to help us in our simplicity and his complexity to understand what he is like Is the concept of light. And Jesus is declared here to be the light of the glory of God. And that when you see Christ in his interactions, in his prayers, in his words, in his miracles, you're seeing the manifestation of the radiant brightness of the Shekinah, the old covenant glory of God. In scripture, light brings sight. Think of how many times in the Bible that the affliction of blindness is associated with helplessness. And a close analogy, darkness leading to blindness. But God is light. He gives light, which gives sight. And when sight is given, evaluations are able to be made. Judgment is able to be rendered. Processes are able to be understood. Helplessness is removed. If the events of the world lead you to helplessness, you may need a healthy dose of the radiance of Jesus Christ in your meditations and in your emotions. History is on the course that it is because it's what he's ordained. That does not make light of the pain that comes from those experience the sins of history and it doesn't make light of our sins within history by saying well he ordained it what can i do in fact it puts more gravity into those events than any other idea that i could think to present to you but jesus as the radiance of god's glory is the means by which you come to interpret the narrative that's playing out in history. In other words, if you read the Old Covenant and then the enter into the New Covenant and you read the Old Testament, enter into the New Testament, and you learn to read this story, you'll learn to read your own story. You'll learn to read the story of history. I don't mean to imply you'll understand every nook and cranny and every twist and turn, but I mean you will understand the role you play. Have you ever had the misfortune of entering into a narrative with someone and you were absolutely sure you were the protagonist and that they were the antagonist? You ever had that experience? Only to watch that thing play out and then... When you calm down, you think about it a little bit later, and you're not so sure you're the guy in the white hat anymore. And, I mean, it can really come rushing in on you, what you are in those moments. And how what you are was made so much worse by misreading the narrative. The more... That the radiance of the glory of God in Christ saturates our mind the more efficient and effective we are at learning to read the narrative. And we will not define our times by the events of the newspaper, but by the man that sits at the right hand of God. He is the radiance of God's glory, He is the exact imprint of his nature, he upholds the universe by the power of his word and that guy who runs everything who is the heir of everything died on a cross for the people that screwed history up you know the amazing thing is that to participate in what is happening in Hebrews 1 1 through 4 to get in on it the one thing you have to admit to your screw-up is that you don't run history, and when you tried, it hadn't worked out very well, is to admit that honestly in your life you have not aligned yourself with the Lord of glory who radiates the light of God into the world, that you have spent much time hiding in darkness so that who you truly are would not be exposed Because that would just be unthinkable to be seen and known in that light. In fact, that's why the Bible says we are so incapable on our own of coming to that light. Because we see at some level that what we are will be exposed. But Christ is all about exposing it and purifying it. He did not enter history and assume the position of Lord over history to destroy history or to destroy humanity, but that through him the world might be saved. And that's why the one act that Hebrews will go on to come back to again and again out of all of these that we've mentioned is this one He made purification for our sins. He entered into history as God's full and final revelation, the radiance of God's glory, the exact imprint of his nature, the creator and heir of all things, and he died on a cross for those who had caused so much pain. It does not matter what your narrative reads up to this point. You are hearing the gospel right now. That to participate in this new age which Christ has inaugurated through his life, death, and resurrection and will one day finally consummate to receive the light and the glory of God into your life, to be made new. Some of you are at the end of a phase where God has been proving to you one great point, and it's this, that you cannot make yourself new through all your resolutions and promises and And really trying hard. And he's brought you here right now to hear how you may be made new. And it's by looking away from yourself. And simply believing what has been proclaimed. That Jesus Christ, creator, heir, sustainer of all of history. Is also the redeemer of sinners. That he took upon himself your sin, past, present, future. He offered himself to God as a substitutionary sacrifice and God was so pleased with his substitution that after three days in the tomb he raised him from the dead and just a few days later exalted him to his right hand where he now rules and reigns over history and if you'll look away from yourself and quit trying to make your happiness your greatest aim by fulfilling it through your own methods and means and plans and Schemes, and you entrust that to Him, He will not only make all things new, but He will make you new. Because we are in Him by faith. So, church, the appeal is to see Jesus Christ as He relates to this age in which we live, and His relationship to it is He is Savior and Lord. And we are called to worship him as that with everything that we are. Let's pray. Father, we commit ourselves into the hands of your son who lived, died, and was raised again for us. And Father, you know that you have done more than every preacher could explain who is sufficient for these things. sum up in a few minutes what you have done through your son in history. But Father, I present the effort to you. I ask that you would take it now in the minds of your people, sanctify it, sort it out, make it fit for their context, Lord, as your spirit begins through the word to deal with them right where they are in the point of their narrative when it seemed to them least likely that you would do such a thing and yet they find themselves here under the proclamation of your word and oh Father to us as we evaluate that that in all the places we could be right now we are here together with other believers surrounded by Christians who love you and trust you And study your word. And that your word has been proclaimed to us. Father, that should say to us that you intend good towards us. We could be elsewhere. Doing many various things. But we're here. And we bless you for that, Lord. And we ask you to forgive us for taking it for granted. For we know here... In the corporate worship of your your people, as Jesus' name is exalted, the course of history, it is here that it's altered. And these actions we take here, these simple actions of standing and singing and praying and sitting and hearing your word, receiving it, giving it, of participating in your sacraments, Father, these are the determinants of history. So help us to see it for what it is. To see behind the earthly veil into the heavenly court where Jesus Christ is at your right hand. And Father, take our worship and make it acceptable today because we offer it in his name and by his agency and by the help of your Holy Spirit. And whatever your ordained end is, To this event now, may you bring it to pass for the glory of your name and for the good of your people. For we entrust ourselves to you in Christ's name. Amen.